Hello and welcome to Watkins Wise Words, a podcast that celebrates conscious, passionate, wise and happy living. Thank you for tuning in and here is your host. So hello and welcome. My name's Steve Nabell and I'm speaking with Daniel Forrest who is the author of The Magical Year. Now Daniel has practiced Celtic witchcraft, druidry and Celtic shamanism for over 25 years. She is a respected wise woman and spiritual teacher who runs regular ceremonies and workshops in the UK. She offers a number of online courses. She is the author of a number of books and the latest is The Magical Year, which we're talking about, published by Watkins out May 2006. And her website is danuforest.co.uk. There'll be a link going out with this podcast. So hi, Danu. Hello. Well, thanks for speaking with me. Now, I've got your copy. Of, I've got an advanced copy of your book, actually, and I was having a look at it. And I've got a little quote here. You say, In the Celtic lands of Britain and Ireland, festivals have for millennia marked the migration of animals, the growth and decay of wild foods and crops, as well as the movement of the sun and moon. From the Neolithic era, the solar cycles of the summer and winter solstices and the spring and autumn equinoxes were honoured as agricultural and spiritual markers. So can you just say something about why was it important for these people to mark the passing, you know, the, the solar year in this way? Well, I think when uh, when humans stopped being sort of hunter-gatherers and uh, became the first farmers in the Neolithic era, I think that they, they made their mark on the land in all sorts of ways with um, barrow mounds and uh, stone circles and things like this. And that was all part of their agricultural calendar and their relationship with the land, how they made the land their own at that point, was really, really interesting. It seems that there's that the, the blend between the spiritual and the practical was kind of very, very seamless. Basically, I think that the um, Neolithic farmers wanted a way to help mark their agricultural year, to teach them when to sow, when to reap. But also they saw that as part of their spiritual patterns, part of their spiritual um, practices throughout the year was all about that cycle of growth and decline and yeah. to be renewed again in the following spring and of course a lot of their um, barrow mounds and stone circles and things like this are marked on astrological parts of the year the solstices and the equinoxes as well as other details um, so that i think these things could be followed in a ceremonial as well as a practical fashion what you said about they knew how to blend the spiritual and the practical because really nowadays or for centuries really the spiritual and the practical have been separated isn't they by religion you know you, you go into church and then you go to work it's not really a seamless one so do you think we're kind of a bit disconnected nowadays from the cycles of the earth well i think we definitely have grown that way in the western world over time i think a lot of our lives are now in offices and in factories and in, in artificial environments and the, the changing of the seasons can go on without us really paying very much attention but uh, i think what we're experiencing these days with our environmental troubles and things like this and as well as the trouble we have within our own psyches these days and our relationship to the land we're definitely suffering i think from that lack of connection really I think that seeing the earth as something to evolve away from is, a, is quite a common thing in a lot of spiritual and uh, religious paths over the last sort of thousand years or so. And I think it's done quite a lot of damage, I think, separating us from the land in a spiritual sense, whereas our connection to the land is a kind of an ever-renewing source of spiritual nourishment for us, really. Pagan peoples, from my understanding, saw that nature and all things physical kind of as sacred that's right we don't kind of see that now you know the sins of the flesh and all this kind of nonsense but can you just say something about that their view of like nature like god goddess moving through nature 
Well, exactly. And I think the, the pagans of the past, I mean, using the word paganism, it's got to be quite a broad umbrella term these days, but pre-Christian civilizations definitely saw the divine in nature in all sorts of ways. Um, especially across Britain, we used to um, honour things like the um, sources of rivers and wells as places that were crossover points between the mortal world and the realm of spirit. There's um, huge amounts of evidence of a lot of sacred springs, like Chalice Well, for instance, in Glastonbury, yeah. being being used as a sacred place for prayers, for healing, and for sort of spiritual empowerment for thousands of years. And pagans today very much practice in the same way, I think, really. We, we sort of see the divine in all, all forms of manifestation, all across nature. Um, and in that sense, it's quite interesting that the idea of spirit in nature being the same thing, the spirit in body being the same thing, I think is quite different than uh, a lot of the kind of Christian and later spiritual movements that we've had over the years. It's quite interesting how, um, how actually paganism goes very hand in hand with a lot of uh, environmental developments, actually. Now, I live in London. I know you live in Glastonbury. And when I look around London, sometimes in the old architecture, not the kind of newer ones, but in churches and sort of old buildings like the Ritz Hotel, there are all these kind of faces of green men and faces mm. like even Greek gods and goddesses. And when I come to Glastonbury, I see, because it's a very different environment down in Glastonbury, mm. you've got, as you said, the Chalice Well and you've got the tour. There's a kind of magical connection with the land. Of course, you've got the, the, the town, you know, the high street full of shops and everything with all selling all kinds of things. But you've got that magic in the land there, haven't you? Which is why, I mean, I go to Glastonbury regularly just to find, reconnect. Um, and there's, you've got this um, goddess temple now that I go and sit in sometimes. Well, You've got all these kind of beautiful things which evoke the spirit. Yes, exactly. And I, th I think that... Um I think that in some places the land speaks to us in a far clearer and louder voice than it does in other places. But as you're saying, in, in London, for instance, and, and in lots of old churches, there's, there's green man figurines and traces of these old beliefs. And it's quite interesting how those those things have lingered on through through time. I think it's something in the sort of human condition to try to have that connection with the land and to have that sense of spiritual continuity. I think it's really, really charming. I think the, the idea of the green man, for instance, is a fantastic example of how we can't help ourselves but to venerate nature, really, on some level, no matter what yeah. the ideology of the time. I mean, when I came to, you could say, Wicca or paganism, I, I kind of connected with um, reclaiming tradition, you know, the Starhawk. Uh, yes, thing. absolutely. And I found, I mean, it just awoke this great magic in me, that, like connecting with all, you could, people might think of it as archetypal energies, like these gods and goddess energies in sacred celebrations. But, I mean, after that, it gave me this impetus to go and visit a lot of the sacred sites around Britain, such as, mm. I mean, Glastonbury, Avebury, Stonehenge, but also kind of Tara, Newgrange. And what really struck me was how much energy our ancestors put into creating these places like Avebury or you know, Newgrange. Mm. I remember the guide saying it took three generations to build. Why did they go to such lengths to build these places? Well, I, I think that it comes down to um, a real sense of reverence for the land. I, I think that perhaps the, uh, the ancestors had their priorities in a very different sort of setup to ours. I, I, the idea, I think, of dedicating a, a large time, you know, a large span of your life and your muscle power to do something that was dedicated to nature, dedicated to your land. I, I think that I think that, that was um, something that was really, really important to them. I, I am, you know, we don't know what setups, what kind of power structures they had yeah. to to call on that amount of manpower 
but I think that the fact that it goes on generation after generation really seems to show that this was a really important thing to them. It was there were acts of love and devotion to the land. I think I, I think that these these were really um, physical prayers. Actually, the right. movement of each of these stones, the um, every time they've dug out hinges with um, antler picks and things like this, yeah. they would have been stunningly beautiful when they were made. They were, you know, mm. for instance, Avebury, the stones would have shimmered. Everything would have been much paler. The stones would have been much paler. The ditches would have been chalk, pl- plain white chalk. Right. So they would have been very otherworldly, magical-looking places. And I think the very act of making them was an act of prayer, actually. Why do you think there's been such a revival in, in, in pagan interest, you know, celebrating the, you know, the wheel of the year? Why, why suddenly, you know, I guess in the last few decades, there's a huge uh, increase of interest, isn't there? Yeah, I think it's really wonderful. I mean, I remember when I first began my training in my very, very early teens, it was very hard to find information about these sorts of things i think perhaps i was at that kind of cusp of different generations there were people practicing wicca and witchcraft and there were people druid orders who had been underway for a while but um there weren't many books out there and of course this was before the internet and things like that and uh, i had to i had to work quite hard to to get information and to get knowledge but by the time 10 years later by the time i was in my early 20s those bookshelves in the bookshops were just filling up more and more and more with with um, amazing books and amazing writers and and more and more organisations coming along, and I think generationally, I think that it's it's gone hand in hand with our shifting relationship with with the earth actually. Um, my generation, I mean, I was sixteen in nineteen ninety, and for me, growing up, my spiritual path and my dedication to to the land in an environmental sense, as in walking lightly on the earth, not polluting various things like this. You know, there, in those days, there was a lot of concern about CFCs and the ozone layer and stuff like this. Yeah. I think that that practical ecological concern mirrored a return to paganism. And I think that that's, that's continued um, in various forms since then. And obviously it was before my day as well, but essentially seeing the earth in trouble um, I think has stirred a lot of people to, to sort of, you know, feel that call that the earth is actually really important to us and that um, how we care for Mother Earth is actually a spiritual calling as much as a practical one. Yeah. Do you see there's a great interest with young people in this uh, revival? Yeah, I think yeah. it's wonderful. I think it seems like generation upon generation, you know, year on year, there's more and more and more young people feeling that that they can make their own spirituality and paganism is part of that picture really yeah. again the knowledge the um the way to gather skills the way to find teachers it's all so much more opened up now now we have the internet and that you know there's you know you can access um ancient libraries online now and get hold of old manuscripts and all sorts of things you know our old grimoires are available that would have been uh, you know a dream to me when yeah. i was a teenager there's so many ways to learn now and you can you can find your own path you can gather the knowledge gather the teachers that suit you as and when but it's very much an individual path and i think that really suits the younger generations and perhaps you know going forward i think that's perhaps the way that it's actually a a fairly dogma free it's not even a system it's a it's a philosophy it's a dogma free philosophy of relating to the earth and relating to nature and to and to the divine in a way that is um personal and true to ourselves 
And I think that really suits the younger generation, actually. I've got high hopes for it going forward that we'll all be, um, that there'll be a greater sense of self-responsibility, I think, in future spiritual developments in the West. Yeah, that's great. When I I grew up, you know, um, a bit like you, there wasn't much around. But I remember when I was very young, Bewitched was on, you know, and I thought this was great. (laughs) But my father banned me from watching it. He never really really explained why. I mean, eventually I got round the ban. It was a silly, silly thing on his part. But, you know, nowadays, and I grew up with Lord of the Rings. I read it so many times. And nowadays you've got the Harry Potter, you've got the, recently the Shannara Chronicles. So even in, you know, even through mainstream media, they're kind of capturing this interest as well, aren't they, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I mean, I think that there's um, obviously a lot of difference between the witches in Harry Potter and the witches that you'll find in the, uh, in the real world. Yeah. But... But I think that sense of magic um, appeals to so many people. And I think that is a real call. It's a real spiritual calling that manifests in lots of different ways in people's everyday lives. And I think that things like the sort of Harry Potter phenomenon and Lord of the Rings before that, of course, I was the Lord of the Rings generation as well. Yeah. I think that they are fantastic things. They, they enchant our experience of the everyday world and they call a lot of people onto the onto the pagan path actually and i think that's just fantastic i think that's just wonderful because you know we can all be the kind of pagan or the kind of witch or even the kind of wizard that we choose to be ourselves i think that's that's key to it all and all of these things just fuel the imagination and the inspiration on our spiritual paths really now in your book you say the wheel of the year can be understood as a continuous cycle of celebration and magic that relates to the four directions and also the patterns of growth and decrease in our life cycles as well as in the earth seasons. So before we look at the kind of the festivals themselves, could you just say something about the four directions? This is a kind of core of magical teaching, isn't it? Yes. Well, I mean, different traditions look at it in different ways. Um, I tend to work with it in, in the sense that of the kind of... Um, kind of Wiccan and kind of mainstream Druidry idea, so that the East relates to the element of air, the South relates to the element of fire, the West to the element of water, and the North to the element of earth. But there's also the Celtic cosmology of it, of earth, sea, and sky. And you can work with all these things in whatever way that it suits you. But it's the idea that we sit present within ourselves, and then we relate to the environment around us. So... We can attach the elements to a specific direction if we choose to, but we can also look around and see where we are on the land. And that's the same in a city, in a high-rise flat, as it is in in a beautiful woodland. We can just be present on the land in our own environment and relate to those directions and relate to the landscape around us and see it not just in a practical sense, but in a spiritual sense, Mm. seeing our relationship in the web really um how we relate to the rest of creation and i think using the compass points in that way are quite easy and quite a kind of simple way of relating and imagining them as threads on the web connecting us to the rest of creation really so it's just a very simple way of getting both grounded and present and connected spiritually to your landscape at the same time so I meditated for many years on these elements in the kind of circle. And I, mm-hmm. I found, but you know, earlier you mentioned this kind of blend of spirit and matter. For me, it seemed to be like, you know, we, we know there's fire, we know there's air, we know there's water. But, and so that's, that's a beautiful connection between the spirit behind it and the actual mm-hmm. physical manifestation, you know. So I, I, I mean, I know what you're talking about. It's brilliant. Um, can, I, can I just look now at the festivals of the year? Can you, 
you know, this is really aligning ourselves with kind of solar year, isn't it? These festivals. Yes. 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 Well, absolutely. And the sort of the whole seasonal pattern. Um, these days we talk about the wheel of the year as being eight main festivals. So that's the solar solstices and the equinoxes. And then what's called the cross quarter days, basically the evenly spaced festivals in between. Mm. And, uh, there's a lot of different thoughts about the Wheel of the Year, but I think one thing that's quite important to realise, and it's quite empowering to realise, actually, is that it's quite a modern thing to put all of these eight festivals together as a whole. Mm. Our ancestors worked with all of these different festivals, um, the solstices, the equinoxes, and the cross-quarter days, which are Beltana, Lunasa, um, Imbolc, um, <laughs> and basically, I think that they worked with all of these festivals at different times and different parts of the land. So some some tribes in Scotland would have worked with some, others in Ireland would have worked with others. Right. But there wasn't a, a sort of consistent whole across the Celtic world or, in fact, in the Neolithic prior to the Celtic world. Because, of course, when we talk about the Celts, a lot of the time we're talking about Iron Age yeah. and afterwards as well, the sort of Celtic fringe, whereas earlier... Um, earlier in the Neolithic, they seem to focus an awful lot on the the solstices and the equinoxes for their stone circles and things. But mm. there's a thread of these important dates recurring throughout history, um, all the way back from those thousands of years ago, right up to our modern May Day celebrations. So, in a sense, coming up with the wheel of the year has been very much something that's come up in the past sort of hundred years as a system of weaving the eight most key festivals of our ancestors together as a whole. And I think had they been as interconnected as we are today, they would have done very much the same thing. But of course, we have to remember that, you know, in the distant past, um, tribes were connected but nothing like as connected as we all are as a kind of global village today mm. so i think it's a really nice mixture of using that ancient wisdom and applying it in a way that is very suitable for the 21st century and going forward quite frankly so if someone's a novice and really is this a book that would be really appeal to them like i, I never heard of the years of the year i'd like to explore it i'd like to try and go through it myself could let's say i'd never heard of them before can i pick up this book and that would help me go through these festivals well yes absolutely i mean this is a book that that quite frankly would work and suit anyone at any point of their spiritual path um whether they're pagan or not it's simply how to relate to the land throughout the wheel of the seasons and there's all sorts of bits and pieces of information in there about the old gods and ancient folkloric practices throughout the history of the british isles and uh, it's very much a book to be dipped in or to be studied as a whole, depending on depending on how you choose to relate to the land. I think the most important thing that I could say about the whole subject of the Wheel of the Year, and I think it's a quite strong thread in this book, is that it's all about our own relationship to the land. I think that we can we can impose kind of rules and strictures on these things and they're not always very helpful. Whereas we can instead use the traditional law of our ancestors and we can apply that in the modern era in an empowered and conscious way instead so we have this knowledge but we also are using it as a place to kickstart our own relationship with the land for ourselves and i think there's no better way than to just feel the seasons and spend some time out in nature and 
just sit with it. There's nothing like being in the woods on a beautiful spring afternoon, for example, or in the cornfields in August around Lanassa to really get the sense of the wheel of the year. But that relationship and those moments in time are very much your own. And I think that's the thing I would encourage most is to to spend time yourself becoming conscious of nature around you in a way that is in your own life so that it becomes a personal experience. And do you think someone in the city can also pick up this book and celebrate it in their own way in the city? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's always ways, there's always markers of, of the change of seasons in, in the city. And I think perhaps it's even more important to do that living in the city. I've lived in the city myself. And it's wonderful when you notice the trees and the plants that do. I mean, London, for example, is a beautifully green city. And there's, there's green spaces in every city in the world. And there's um, the changes of the birds and things like that, that that migrate over the city skies. There's there's an endless way to cre- to connect with nature in the city, and I think that um, it's perhaps even more important that we do so when we live in built-up areas, not just for our own spiritual practice, but to remind the land that we care to build those connections with the divine spirit in the land itself, whether we see that as as a, a sort of a consciousness or individual gods, or we see it as a whole. Um, that relating to the land in the cities is vitally important for ourselves, I think, and and for the spirit of place itself. Brilliant. Well, Danu, thank you so much uh, for speaking with me, and all the best with the, with your book um, coming out in May, The Magical Year, published by Watkins. And um, as I mentioned, your website, danuforest.co.uk, um, it will be a link with this podcast. So, thanks, Danu. Thank you very much for speaking to me. Thank you. Like what you've heard. Be part of our community by visiting watkinspublishing.com, following us on Twitter at Watkins Wisdom or liking us on Facebook.